This program is presented by University of California Television. Like what you learn? Visit our website or follow us on Facebook and Twitter to keep up with the latest UCTV programs. He looked at me and he started screaming at me. <laughs> you idiot. He dropped the F-bomb, the S-bomb. I mean, it was like unbelievable. Bill Gates, the richest man in the world, is just unloading on me. Papa John. You know, Papa John, you see this guy on TV with Peyton Manning? He came into the office. What's so great about that? He goes, oh, I have better dough than everyone. Right? <laughs> you don't have better dough? I mean, I didn't own that. I mean, why was I going to buy that? The center is the customer. They're the ones who are paying for everything. I just saw this as, oh my God, this is like my chance. A quarter of a million dollars, it was almost surreal. You can't just cut out one person in the supply chain in order to solve the problem. Those are the kind of people you want. You respect them, their integrity, their intelligence, their ability, their can-do attitude, hard work. All right, welcome back to the UC Santa Barbara's Distinguished Lecture Series. With today is Chris Philippe. Chris is the managing member of CAF Holdings here in uh, Santa Barbara, which is a private office, a private investment office. He's participated in numerous angel investments over the years, and he's very active in the Santa Barbara entrepreneurial community. Prior to coming to Santa Barbara, Chris founded and managed Sirios Capital, which was a which was in Boston. Um, and for it was a multi-billion dollar long and short hedge fund. Before that, he worked 13 years at MFS, where he was led the team that was the number one ranked team in the growth fund market in all of the U.S. for a three-year period. He holds his MBA from Wharton, University of Pennsylvania, and he earned his undergraduate degree in economics at UCLA. Now, I mentioned that he's here in Santa Barbara now and he's doing angel investing. He's actually doing much more than that. Santa Barbara is, a, is blessed with great weather, access to the ocean. It's just a nice place to live in general. So we're very fortunate that folks that have success in other places often come to Santa Barbara, um, not realizing that it is a hotbed for entrepreneurship. They get here and they realize, wow, I can add back to this community. I can add to this vibrant economic uh, entrepreneurial ecosystem. And that's exactly what Chris has done. I try to bring folks into the classroom that have a balanced life. They haven't just um, you know, been successful in business. I like to bring in folks that give back, and Chris is a great example of that. Um, very active philanthropically. He's been a great supporter of the technology management program here at UC Santa Barbara, for which we are very grateful. He also was instrumental in driving force Jim, which is the Goleta entrepreneurial magnet here in town. Um, and he, he set up a matching uh, funds uh, program that helped push that program um, uh, into the black and actually made it happen, which was wonderful for our, for our community. Jim and UC Santa Barbara have been working closely together, and the recent Forbes article that ranked UC Santa Barbara as one of the top entrepreneurial undergraduate um, institutions in the country cited the partnership between Jim, which Chris helped make happen, um, and UC Santa Barbara. So again, this isn't happening all over the country, but it is happening here in Santa Barbara. Let's welcome Chris to our class.
thanks for coming, Chris. Okay. We have a lot of students here that are actually econ majors right now. Mm -hmm. So they're looking up on the stage and they're seeing a very successful econ major. I'm just curious, what motivated you to pursue that degree initially? Um, going into it, what did you think you would get out of it, and how did that differ from what you actually did get out of it? Okay. Well, um, I'm a first-generation American. Uh, my parents were... Um, born in France, came here after World War II, and so they always created a very strong work ethic with me. And so they said, if you're going to go to school, you're ultimately going to get a job. And so I went to UCLA, and they didn't have a business school. They didn't have a business program, so economics sounded like the best thing. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to be an economics major. Um, my dad wanted me to be a dentist, and that didn't make any sense to me. So, <laughs> my parents. Yeah, no. And so, um, but I, I enjoyed economics, but I kind of found it to be a little bit dry. Um, so I majored also in political science, mm. and I thought that would be, it was a, I kind of really enjoyed political science and thought I might want to do that one day. And so uh, when it was time to graduate and get a job, I looked into political science, and there was two choices. It was the CIA or the Foreign Service. And neither of those, uh, the applications were just huge. I said, no, I don't want to do that. So I, I kind of uh, looked at what an economics uh, degree could do for me. Right. And um, I found um, a job um, at a firm called IDS. Um, and I was a salesman. I was a salesman selling mutual funds. It turned out my economics degree was very helpful, mm -hmm. and um, um, it, it was my first entrepreneurial effort. And I say that because I was a salesman with no salary. I was a salesman with 100% commission. So I knew what it was like to be an entrepreneur at a very young age. Yep. And um, I did it. Um, I enjoyed it. It's tough. So if any of you are fourth years, I guess that's, that's the term, not seniors, fourth years, and you're looking for a job, the unemployment rate for salespeople is zero. Now, I just made that up. No, it is. The, the point is, is that there's always a job for a salesman. Okay, you can sell, you can sell yourself, but most importantly, you, you've got to sell. You've got to sell. Um, you can go any business in Santa Barbara, any shop, from Starbucks on up. They need salespeople. They need they need people to communicate with the public. And so I did that for three years, and it was a great experience. Um, um, I was selling mutual funds, I was selling uh, insurance product, I was selling in, uh, real estate partnerships. Um, I, I, real, I enjoyed, the, I was able to use my economics background and, and uh, in the investment business, but at some point I decided that I, I didn't want to sell mutual funds. I wanted to manage mutual funds. Right. Well, I, I always tell students, and I often get that question as they graduate, you know, what, what career path makes the most sense for me? I want to be an entrepreneur, but I'm not ready to start a company. And I always say get a job selling. Um, even if you don't think that you're going to be a lifetime salesperson, the skills that you learned as a salesperson, they're invaluable. They will help you throughout your career. Hiring people, that's a sales process. Negotiating to raise money, that's a sales process. Uh, finding your mate in life, that's a sales Well, at least for me, it was a sales process. So it, 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 you use those skills over and over and over again. And so even if you're a bit uncomfortable with, with maybe pursuing a sales job right out of school, 
deal with that discomfort and, and, and suck it up and do it. You won't regret it. So you, you, you get your econ degree, you make your parents happy, you go out and you learn how to sell, but then you decided to go to a school that I've never heard of, Wharton, <laughs> and, uh, and earn your MBA. So right. what was that experience like and what motivated you? Okay. Well, as I said, I, I enjoyed the sales process, but I was selling these mutual funds and I was looking all the time in the prospectuses and what stocks they owned and, and I go, gosh, you know, I really want to be an analyst. I want to run, run a, be a portfolio manager. And really the only way to do that was to get an MBA. So I I applied, and um, I got rejected a lot, and that's going to happen, but I got into Wharton, and um, I accepted, and I drove cross-country from, you know, UCLA, right, Santa Monica, I was living in Playa del Rey, went to Philadelphia, and I had culture shock. I mean, (laughs) Philadelphia is not... Santa Barbara. No. Okay, I mean it's a different place to live, but I, I sucked it up and I, I did two years. Uh, got my MBA in, with a um, a emphasis in investment management, mm-hmm. and it was by far the best decision I've ever made in my life. So, would you recommend an MBA for someone who thinks they want to be an entrepreneur? Um, okay, that's a tough question. So. Um, in the for an, in someone who wants to be in the investment management business, an MBA is very important. I would say that um, to be an entrepreneur, you need business knowledge. So what I what I love, and this is what UCSB is doing, mm-hmm. is coming up with a one year program for STEM students, but entrepreneurial students, and I think a one year program. Um, for entrepreneurs would be sufficient. I mean, you know, you need to know the basics of, of accounting, of cash flow, of, of certain things. Right. If you're going to get into the investment business and you need to know capital asset pricing models or if you're going to do a real estate trust, I think it's more important to get an MBA. But if, if you were um, an entrepreneur, I think uh, a one-year program would be sufficient, yeah, in I my agree. thinking. I agree. And our master's program would be a good choice. It would be an excellent choice. Plug. Show up next year. We're open for business. So let's take the first question from the audience. Um, Thank you so much for coming to talk to us. But uh, my question is, what inspired and pushed you to jumpstart and fund Jim besides the potential that you saw in the small businesses of Santa Barbara? Okay. So I'm just going to repeat it because that was a little quiet. What what inspired him to start Jim, which I mentioned, um, besides just the obvious, you know, helping um, the folks here in Santa Barbara, helping the businesses? Okay. So um, I, I I grew up in Southern California, and I left. Um, I lived in two years in Boston, and, uh, two years in Philadelphia, and 25 years in Boston. And I came back to California three years ago. And to be honest with you, California today is not what California was like 25 years ago. California was the fifth largest economy in in the country, uh, in the world, and today it's around the eighth largest. Okay, to, to put certain things in perspective, um, if you look at the um, the employment in this country, uh, in this state, since the to- the top before the recession, employment's up about 25,000 jobs. Okay. And remember, the population's grown several hundred thousand. In Texas, the employment is up a million and a half. Last month, they've had their biggest month ever. So I came back to California 
And I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to bring back to California that, that those uh, golden days, you know, those days of the Beach Boys in which California was just a, a booming place. And so, um, and, and the reason I did that, quite selfishly, is I have three kids. Okay, one's a senior at Berkeley, one just graduated from UCLA, and one graduated from USC. Okay, so I'm a hedge fund guy. I got all the Pac-12 covered, right? <laughs> so, um, so the first thing I did is I got involved in a pol- political campaign. And it was uh, someone running for office around here. Remember, I was a political science major. And it was a local race. Um, and he lost badly. Thanks to you guys, I'm sure. But that's okay. I, yeah. um, I forgive you. You're young, right? As, as, as Winston Churchill said, if you're, if you're not liberal when you're young, you don't have a heart. If you're not conservative when you're old, you don't have a brain. So anyway, I, I, I then, I tacked. I said, Why, if you can't beat him, join him. And so then I said, well, how, how can I... How can I give back to California to try to create an infrastructure to create some jobs here in Santa Barbara in particular? And that's where I got involved in GEM. So I heard about GEM through Mike Panisis of, of, of you know, the TMP program. I was a member of the Tech Coast Angels. And uh, they needed some funding. And so um, I stepped up because I thought it was a great idea for them to have an incubator an accelerator program. I say that because I went to go see the Hot House in San Luis Obispo. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's 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 uh, you know it's like Gem, you know, five years ahead of time. Um, they're, they're, uh, these incubators are, are taking place all over the community, and I thought it was a great opportunity so that you could take UCSB. <clears throat> Um, through the NVC program in particular, which I was a judge on uh, last year, and take that, that, that UC, those UCSB students and give them an opportunity to um, uh, go to GEM, try out their business, and, and if, if they were successful through the, accelerator, through the um, accelerator program to stay in the incubator program and stay here and hopefully start a company and start a job and, 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 and work here and grow the community. So generally speaking, that's why I got involved in GEM. It's been a process in terms of just trying to give back to California to get it growing again like I remember it when I was here. Right. How's that sound? I like that answer. Um, no comment on the politics, although we don't disagree. Uh, so you so you go to Wharton. You you knew that you wanted to manage mutual funds, not just right. sell them. Um, what happened when you got on Wall Street? I had a bunch of my friends had that Wall yeah. Street experience. Some had a great experience, some oh. didn't. What was your experience, and what was? I had the greatest experience. Okay, I start I started off as a security analyst. Security analyst is someone who follows an industry gets to know it really well, and then makes recommendations to portfolio managers who buy the stock, okay? I came in as the hardware analyst, which means I came in and um, I followed IBM and, and, and Hewlett Packard. I then, after a year, morphed and became the software analyst, 
which I followed Microsoft and Oracle and Borland and, and companies you've not, you've not heard of because they've all gone under business. Oracle being uh, should be a very big name to you guys because at one point I was the largest shareholder in Oracle. I was the largest shareholder in my firm when uh, Jeff Henley came in and took over for someone called uh, Walker who was fired because he was messing up the, uh, the, the books. And Henley became the vice chairman of Oracle. You may not know that, but he is a UCSB alumni. Yep. When you come in, you'll see Henley Gate. You'll see that he just gave $50 million to, to the engineering department. So there is a long history, at least with Oracle and, and, um, and my experience with, with Oracle. So I was, a, I was a security analyst. Okay, I recommended stocks. So I went to... Um, my first recommendation was a company called Hewlett Packard. You've heard of the name. Hewlett Packard was, was wavering. The stock wasn't doing anything, but they were about to introduce a brand new mini computer. It was going to be the hottest thing that was going to hit the market. I went to visit the company in Palo Alto. I felt good. I wrote it up. Wrote it up. We started buying the stock. I mean, just banging in there. First recommendation, kid from Warren, let's go. Take a full position. One month later, they announced that the product was going to be delayed for six months. The stock went down by 20%. I went into uh, a portfolio manager's office, and I said, Mr. Harris, I have good news and bad news. You know, good news, the stock is down. Buy more. The bad news, stock is down. He goes, he goes, son, the only good news is that window is locked. Now, we were on the 25th floor. <laughs> so I did not have a great first experience. Okay? Fortunately, I was patient, and the stock came back. And um, I, I guess the point of this story is that um, I, I wasn't discouraged, or at least I had people at the office who were very helpful to me, and... Um, I think uh, it's that perseverance that led me to, the, to being an analyst and sticking it through, because other people on Wall Street would have, a lot of people, my friends left the business and, during periods of that. Right. But the fortunate part, part is, is that I had a box seat. I was front row for the entire technology revolution that you guys are enjoying now. I was there for the first PCs. I was there for the first cell phones. I was there for the internet when Netscape and AOL came out. I was there um, for the first cloud computing. I mean, I had a first-hand seat, a box row, box seat, to seeing, uh, to to meeting all these great people, to investing in all these people. And it's, uh, it, was, it was a very fruitful experience for me. It had its ups and downs. I led through the crash of 87, the crash of 89, the crash of 2000. But um, going back, I would, uh, I, would, I would do it again. Not only was I the technology analyst, I also then became the, the airline analyst. I was a financial services analyst. I was a metals and mining analyst. Went out to New Mexico and saw copper pits. And it was a really fun job. Um, that uh, I think uh, I would recommend everyone think about if they're inve interested in the investment business. So I'm sure you had a lot of wins, but right. what was your biggest win and what motivated you to place that bet? All right, so my biggest win was, um, so I became the software analyst in 1987. Microsoft had just come public. 
So I went to go visit Microsoft, came back feeling pretty confident, recommended it. We were buying it. A year later, I go back to see Microsoft, and <clears throat> I felt pretty confident. And it was a big room like this, and they're doing an analyst presentation this time. And the back of the room, you know, breaking for coffee was Bill Gates, right? So I go up to Bill Gates. No one's talking to him. And I go, you know, I'll go ask him a question. And I said, Bill, uh, you know, here's the richest man in the world just talking to me. I go, Bill, I think you should cut the price of Excel. He looked at me. And he started screaming at me. <laughs> you idiot. He dropped the F-bomb, the S-bomb. I mean, it was like unbelievable. Bill Gates, the richest man in the world, is just unloading on me. Okay? And I'm just sitting there going, okay. All of a sudden, there's a crowd coming. You know, there, there are other people coming in, right? There's other people coming in, and I just sort of back off. Well, what that showed me was passion. I mean, Gates, Gates had passion. He believed in what he was doing. I went back to my office. I said, I think, this, I think what I think is going to happen is what uh, he should do. And we went back, and we just loaded up on Microsoft. Well, within six months, he cut Excel price, okay? Killed Lotus. Lotus ended up in the hands of IBM. He bundled it with Microsoft Word, which is what you now have on your desk called Office. And it was, it was the next boom. Microsoft, my initial cost, that is the initial investment I made in Microsoft, was $0.08 cents a share. The stock today is $45. Okay? That stock was the largest position at MFS. It was the largest position that I owned. It made my career... And for that reason, I think I'm the only one who has a Windows phone, right? I'm, I can't believe anyone else here. Does, it, does anyone have a Windows phone? I doubt it. They all have a, Apple. Um, and so when, when I say I, what was my best investment, the best investment was having Bill Gates just scream at me and, and create conviction. Yeah. And so... You know, it was a great investment, but I don't want you to leave thinking that, you know, I'm some type of genius that I made some great investments because I missed a lot of investments, okay? Jeff Bezos, I don't know if you know who Jeff Bezos is, but he runs Amazon. So he came into my office. I was a portfolio manager at the time. And he's coming in. It was an IPO, Roadshow, right? You know, you heard about they come in, they're coming public. Everybody dreams of going public. So he comes in. He, you know, Amazon just seemed like a low barrier to entry, lousy business. <laughs> and I'm listening to him. And out of nowhere, he starts laughing, just cackling. I mean, just like the weirdest laugh in the world. I go, <laughs> and, and it, it turns out that he does this all the time. Well, I just said, you know, I'm not, I'm not touching this. I'm getting rid of this thing. And I go into the training room. I flip it. Right Now, during my professional career, that was actually a really reasonably good invest, uh, decision, but Amazon has taken over the world. If, you're, if you want to read a good book, um, the, the guy, uh, the Apple book is the tremendous book Isaacson wrote, but uh, it's called The Everything Store, and it tells you uh, what he has done that I, I didn't see at the time, and I didn't see in my professional career. But I missed Amazon, okay? I missed Starbucks. I mean, Howard Schultz came in. I mean, why would... It's a coffee shop. 
with an Italian sounding cup. Who would buy that? I mean, there's no buried entry. Okay, I didn't expect Starbucks to take off. Right. Papa John's. You know, Papa John's, you see this guy on TV with Peyton Manning? He came into the office. What's so great about that? He goes, oh, I have better dough than everyone. Right? <laughs> you don't have better dough? I mean, I didn't own that. I mean, why was I going to buy that? Cheesecake factory. Guy comes in. Oh, my God. He didn't miss any of the recipes. I mean, he was a large man. And I, 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 I thought he was going to have a heart attack when he walked out of the room. Flip the stock. But Cheesecake Factory has been a very good stock. Howard Stern. Okay? I, there was, he, he, was, he was on something called Infinity Radio. Okay? And on Infinity Radio, um, I went to go visit the CFO because we were a big owner of Infinity CBS. And the guy goes to me, he goes... Do you want to see Howard? I go, sure, he's taping right now. Okay, I'll go see Howard. I go in, and I look in, and I see Howard Stern doing his show, and there are six Playboy models, all topless. I go, this is crazy. The SEC is going to throw him off the air. I go, he can't get away with this. So I ended up not, well, it turns out the SEC did ban him, and he went to satellite. So I never bought Sirius Radio. And now he's on like TVs, like an American Idol or one of those shows, right? So, so I guess my point here is this, is that um, one success can make a big difference. You can miss an Amazon, okay? You can miss a Starbucks. You can make a mistake with a Hewlett Packard in, the, in your career. But don't let your mistakes define you. Let your winners define you. When you find something that you really believe, whether it's a major that you think you got, whether it's a, a someone that you think is very special next to you, whether it's an idea, when you find that idea and you believe in it, you, you, have, to, you have to go all in. I went all in on Microsoft, and it made a difference. Okay, I remember. I mean, to emphasize that, uh, I did start a hedge fund called Serios, and um, one of my largest investors is a guy named George Soros. I don't know if you know of Soros, but Soros is a very, very big, uh, uh, you know, hedge fund manager. And so I'm sitting up there like on the third meeting with him after he's invested with us, and he looks at the portfolio, and we're having lunch, you know, overlooking Central Park. And he goes, Chris, yes, George, do you like this name? I said, George, I got 10% of the fund in it. You know, in, my, in a mutual fund, I could only own five. In a, mutual, in a hedge fund, I could own as much as I want. He goes, yes, George, I own 10%. He goes, but do you really like it? I go, yes. He goes, well, if you like it, why don't you bet big? I mean, I thought I was betting big at 10%. He knew how to make money. He knew how to invest. You have, when you find something, if you have passion about something, it doesn't have to be just an investment. It can be about a career. The key, at least I feel, from looking at all these people that I've dealt with is when you believe in something, you got to go all in. 
And that's what I did with Microsoft, and it certainly has made um, a big difference in my life. Yep, and all the poker players in the room know that's true, too. you got a good hand, you got to go all in with that hand. What's funny about the gate story, so um, one lesson there, I think, is don't be afraid to just walk up and talk to somebody. Right. So what that he was the CEO of this company? He still drinks coffee and yeah. like everyone else. So go up and talk to him. Um, and the other thing that's funny, if that had happened now, you would have been a YouTube star because it would have been posted uh. in like 30 seconds. Right. Like, I got cussed out by Bill Gates. Watch. You know, it's pretty cool. <laughs> no YouTube back then. No YouTube. So we'll take the next audience question. My question is, what are some main core values that you've kept close to you when becoming successful or when going through road bumps? Uh, yeah, I think the, the core value is to believe in yourself. I mean, I really do believe that. Um, again, you know, I grew up, you know, very modest beginning and uh, just worked hard and just believed, you know, believed in the American dream, as, it's, as corny as it sounds, but I believed in it. I worked it, and I saw it. I saw it firsthand. I mean, I saw companies. I mean, you guys are so fortunate. You, I mean, you guys have the Internet now. We didn't have the Internet. We have cell phones. You have everything because of a, a generation that made a difference. And I think the core value is those guys, I mean, they were ruthless, but they worked hard. So core values is something I think it's important too. Yeah. Something else I, I, I encourage our students to pursue is a mentor. Yeah. So do you, do you have a mentor in your career, or did you get a chance, kind of a double question, did you get a chance to be a mentor to someone else during your career? Right. So as a security analyst, um, you are shepherded, or you, you have a mentor. So I had, uh, when I became the hardware analyst, I had someone who was the hardware analyst who then mentored me for six months. And so really, you weren't allowed to do, you weren't allowed to talk to portfolio managers, you weren't to make any recommendations, you just had to work hard and make a, uh, and make a presentation. So I did have a mentor, and I believe in a mentor. I didn't have a, you know, a guru behind me always pushing me, but right, right. Uh, you definitely had a mentor, and you will. When you get into the workforce, there will be plenty of people who will, who will support you, and I actually trained the software analysts when I, when I left, so yes. Well, even, even, you know, I think that word gets kind of overblown, like yeah. even Soros in that moment yeah. was a mentor. Mentor. He was oh. maybe not a lifelong mentor, yeah. but you just have to have your eyes and ears open to that advice, right. and you know, make sure you, you listen to everyone, ignore most of them, but but you know, listen to the advice that makes the difference. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll take um, we'll take the next question from the audience. Okay. Um, <clears throat> question is, what can a student from university that does not have a finance program and is not a place where investment firms normally recruit? do to help start a career in investment banking? Okay. So investment banking uh, is different than investment management. So investment banking is, a lo- is basically a sales job. You're selling companies. You're putting together companies. It's very much a Wall Street job. Um, uh, that's more of a job that I would consider getting an MBA for. Um, but if you want to get in the investment business, um, you could get into, uh, you know, work at a brokerage firm as a retail investor. Actually, you could work at the old firm that I worked for called IDS. See, I, I worked for IDS. It was bought by American Express. Great, because that created cachet. And then American Express separated to something called Ameriprise. And turns out Ameriprise has an office up on Upper State Street. So if you're thinking of you know, looking for a sales job in the investment business, I would call them up. It worked for me. 
um, maybe it'll work for you. Yep. I think when you're willing to invest in yourself and say that I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll sell at no commission. I mean, I'll sell a commission, but no base. Right. I mean, that's who's going to say no to you, right? It's a, again, you're never going to be unemployed. So 13 years at MFS, you had um, tremendous success, right. number one rated um, growth investor for three years. Right. So after 13 years, you found yourself at a crossroads, right. and you ended up starting your own fund. Like, right. What prompted that, and why didn't you just go to another? You, you had a good name. You could right. have walked into to any other place. Sure. Okay. So um, I was at MFS for 13 years. I thought I'd never leave. I mean, at, I was, you know, I was like almost like a rock star in, in, in the sense that I was being interviewed by the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times. Um, I, I, was the, I was the number two selling mutual fund in the United States. $40 million a day was coming into the product. Um, I had the number one growth fund in the country. I could speak at any conference at any time. And your par- I'm sure that your parents' 401k or IRA, at some point, I managed. And the money was coming in at $40 million a day. Wow. And it was insane. And it was 1999, and now tech had just gone vertical. Right? I mean, you were talking Netscape came out at 10 and it went to 150. It was nuts. And it didn't seem right to, to. I was trying to be a prudent manager of people's money and I thought the risk was too high. So I went to my boss. I said, Look, I think we should start a hedge fund. I think we should you know, provide an alternative to people. And, or along with a partner of mine. And he looked at me and he says, Oh, let me, let me think about it. And I got the impression he was going to say yes. <laughs> and then a week later, he says, Chris, no. Uh, it's not part of the culture. Um, you have, a, you have uh, three days to decide. Either you're with us or you're gone. And that's it. They fired me. So within, within a 13-year career, uh, and I, was, I, ha- I had it all. I had it, I had it really good. Um, I was fired. Out on the streets, all by myself, uh, with, my, with my partner, three kids, a mortgage, uh, and we had to start a hedge fund. We had to start a business. And we did. And all we did for six months was sell. Because that's all you can do as an entrepreneur is sell. And we made presentations in New York to everyone and anyone who would listen to us. And one day I made presentations to three billionaires. <laughs> okay? To George Soros, to Larry Tisch, to Henry Silverman. They all said yes. We fortunately had a good reputation. We had a good story. Within six months, we raised $550 million. Within three years, we were at $2.5 billion hedge fund. Now, MFS, went, the market imploded. I don't know if you guys know that, but in 2000, the tech market imploded. MFS imploded. We were up, in, in the period of time that I was managing money, the S&P 500 was down 30%. The NASDAQ was down 50%. We were up 80%. Okay? MFS imploded. The SEC went after them for um, some uh, late trading violations on the mutual fund side. And I felt pretty good. We did good. They didn't do so well. 
they've survived, Syria survived. And uh, so that's, so, so I guess I left because I felt that um, the markets were overheated and I wanted to provide a vehicle to, um, to protect investors. In hindsight, I think it was the right decision. Um, and I, I'm, I'm very happy I did it, but I never thought I'd leave MFS. And I thought it was a great firm and um, I'd recommend you to one day work at MFS if you yeah. could. No, it's, I think there's a lot of good lessons here. Um, oftentimes, think people think getting a fire is sort of the end of the world. It's usually the beginning of a new world. It's usually a new door that opens. Easy to say that now. I'm sure at the time it was, you know, you're fairly betrayed. It's personal. Yeah, it's you feel hurt. But, um, you know, the true entrepreneurs step up and make an opportunity out of a challenge like that. Um, and I know everyone in this room would see it the same way. I think bankruptcy is very similar. I've had a, um, a, a friend who was a 16-year-old millionaire. He was on Oprah. He was a very, very successful person. He had a house on the beach, cars, 21 years old, bankrupt. Filed for bankruptcy. He's like, is this it? This is nothing. And he went off and, and made another huge fortune. So, again, it's, you know, you've got to bounce back from those um, setbacks if you're an entrepreneur and, and you have that drive in you. We'll take, um, I know you're writing, we'll take the next question from the audience. Hi, um, thank you for such great um, messages so far. Uh, my question is, um, I'm taking a class in public speaking and we make presentations to you know persuade, right? And as a student and you as the investor, um, would you say that ingenuity and the likelihood of returning profit always overrule your emotional tug to invest to something? Because what I've learned in class is that the emotional appeal is what's going to make the decision for you know the person listening. So mm-hmm. I really want to know if that's true from your side. Yeah. Um, I, I think when you're trying to make an investment, um, you're basically uh, you're, you're looking at the business and you're looking at the management and you're trying to find both. You need both. And so that's where um, you're looking at the business. The management part can be the emotion part, like this guy, you know, he's going to feel good, there's something good about it. But if the business doesn't work, if the business idea doesn't uh, doesn't have a um, you know isn't, doesn't feel like it has a sustainable uh, business model, then it's not going to work. So, like I say, I like you have to you, sometimes you, you have to decide if you want to bet on the horse or you want to bet on the jockey. I'd rather bet on both, <laughs> and I think you're better off. Actually, betting on the trainer. If you go, I mean, if you go to if you go to Santa Anita, like I did out of high school, like skip classes, it's always bet on the trainer. But um, if you go bet on the on the on the uh, the horse and the jockey, I hope that kind of answers it. So six months in, you raised um, a nice amount of money. Yeah, had a great career. Ended up selling that that venture. When you look back on it now, were there any challenges that surprised you? And what could you have done in retrospect if you had had anticipated uh. them? I, th- I think the challenge was just how emotionally draining it is to start a business. Yes, I, I just can't tell you, how, you know, it, it, you know, especially when you've had a good job and you get fired, and then you, all of a sudden you're got to do it, and it's really stressful. And uh, just be prepared for that. I mean, I wasn't prepared for that. I, I, I didn't wasn't prepared enough. Yep. So in hindsight, what would I have? Well, I don't know what. <laughs> I don't know. You've got to prepare yourself. Nothing like being prepared, but it's, it's hard. 
Yeah, I think going into it, you just have to realize it's the toughest job you'll ever have. I mean, right. really, the cliche is there for a reason. Starting a company is extremely difficult. It's much more rational. You could have gone off and met another mutual funds manager right. and, and kept that lifestyle right. that you wanted. That would have been a more rational decision, but um, you took the harder path, yeah. which often is sort of the more lucrative path. So looking back in your career, would you ever, either yourself or did you ever see other people facing an ethical dilemma okay. that uh, challenged them? And if it was you, how did you deal with that? Sure. The ethical dilemma. So in the investment business, the ethical dilemma is insider trading. Does anyone think here insider trading, um, do you understand insider trading? Right, okay. It's not, you do not insider trade, okay? If you have material non-public information, you're, you cannot trade on that. So I was a young analyst, and I went to visit a company in the Silicon Valley called Quantum, it's a disk drive company. And uh, we didn't own the stock, but I was visiting them, and I you know, said, Chris, do you want to know what the numbers are? We're going to report after the close. I go, <laughs> well, we don't own the stock. And I looked at my watch. The market was going to close in five minutes. I go, okay, sure. Let me know. Right? So I had material non-public information. I kept that secret like I had the nuclear code to the, the, the atomic weapons. I didn't say any I mean I didn't say anything to anyone for three days, even though they announced it five minutes later. Because I knew it was wrong. And so, um, and so it was wrong to disseminate it. It was wrong to trade it, okay? It's not, it's not wrong to necessarily have it. You can't trade it. And so uh, I always took this insider trading, uh, um, uh, and everyone should, seriously. Six months after I started Serios, um, Martha Stewart decides to come public. Mm. Now, do, do we know Martha Stewart, right, the, the cooking maven? So she comes into her office, you know, pink chiffon, lovely lady. You know, she seems a little arrogant on TV. She's a lovely lady. My mom loves her. I go to my, I go, Martha, she was handing out cookbooks. Martha, can you autograph this cookbook to my mom? She does. Happy birthday, Mom, Annie. You know, and I give it to my mom. And, you know, we talked about the business. And, and, and she leaves. I didn't, do the, I didn't do the deal. Six months later, Martha Stewart has traded her chiffon pink for prison orange and is in a West Virginia prison for insider trading. Now the le- now she got she got convicted for lying about insider trading, even though she was never convicted of insider trading. So that's a different story. But my point is, Martha Stewart, her life, her career is scarred. A, a great career. She's a nice lady. She helps you bake cookies. Right? She's helped my mom make, you know, pudding, whatever. But now she's scarred for life because she did something that she would never have done again. And I guess the lesson here is that if you ever have a chance to cross that bridge, think of Martha Stewart, okay? And don't do it, it doesn't pay.
Yeah, I always tell students and my own children, even avoid the appearance of impropriety, not just impropriety, you know, because sometimes you can look at things and go, well, that's not wrong. Well, is it going to look wrong from someone else? Are you going to have to spend the next six months explaining? No, Chris, it wasn't wrong, really. I know it looks weird. Just don't even do it. If it's going to appear to be improper, move on. There's plenty of opportunities in this world. Don't do it, especially in a town like Santa Barbara. You, uh, it, you won't survive. Next question. Uh, what advice do you have for people with no investment knowledge, and what is the smartest thing to do with one's money at a young age? Okay. So if you have no investment knowledge and you want investment knowledge, um, I would read the Wall Street Journal every day. I would, um, you know, watch, read a couple websites and, you know, keep yourself informed by Yahoo Finance or, or, or Barron's. And then um, what, was the other, what was the other part of the question? How to manage their money. How to manage your money. I, uh, save. Yeah, don't go to Starbucks. <laughs> the, you, you save. What about investing? I, well, I, first of all, I don't give investment advice. <laughs> but uh, I think, what if I did? But if I did, I mean, I think you're young. You know, buy uh, an index fund. Buy an S&P 500 index fund. I mean, you know, that's... And, and, and never going all at once, you know, you, you, know, you do want to, on a, something that you have conviction in, but if you don't really know, go in slowly, dollar cost average, couple, a little bit every month so that you have, you know, you buy on the dips and you don't get sucked into the highs, and then be long-term. I think the key is establish that saving mentality yeah. early because what happens to a lot of young people, it's not going to happen to you guys, they get that first real job and then they just spend like they're Rockefeller. And all of a sudden, they've got credit card debt, and they think, How, why am I in debt? I have a great job. Well, you spend more than you make, you'll be in debt. So just put, a, put aside a certain amount of money, and as Chris says, do dollar cost averaging, which means you're buying in every month to a 401k or a mutual fund or an index fund. And sometimes you'll pay a little too much. Sometimes you'll get a really good deal. But over time, you'll pay a good, fair average price. It's not too early to start, um, to start saving as a young adult. Can you, can you tell that to my kids? I know. I tell it to my kids. My <laughs> kids are savers. They were, they were good, they're good savers. Um, so another thing that we're encouraging these students to do, get a mentor, and the other is go out there while they're still in school if they can. And I know everyone's got um, different schedules, but if they have time, get an internship. So for some students, they've never really interviewed for a professional job, like they've interviewed for service jobs. Do, you interviewed a lot of people. You hired a lot of people. Do you have any interview tips or things you like to see when a young person mm-hmm. came to you? Well, I, I would say just the basics are just um, be prepared. So if you're going to go to an interview, at least read, read the website, understand what they're, they're, they're about, you know, look professional, okay? And then the one thing that I think people don't do enough is send a thank you note immediately after, an email or whatever. Just, you know, stay in contact. The key here is whether or not they gave you the job. If they rejected you, it doesn't matter. Because if they're in the industry that you like, you'll end up seeing them again. Um, if they rejected you the first time, they might see you again. Never burn any bridges. Just be professional. Don't get pissed off because they didn't give you the job. Just accept it. They saw a lot of interviews. You were all good. Someone got the job, but definitely, you know, the thank you is what I find um, troubling when people don't do it. And 
you know, but that's yeah. just common sense. Stuff. Yeah, I think whenever somebody gives you their time, you, you, you owe them a thank you. Do you have? Do you know? Can you recall of anyone that's ever stood out, or anything the students can do to stand out? Because you see uh, this, it's just kind of they all blur, and then all of a sudden somebody does something where you're like, well, I remember that student. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I can't. Well, I'll give I you an example. I can't give you the exact. Uh, okay. I just wondered if maybe in your career you had one. So one thing that's great for you guys is, and, and a student did this recently. I've, I've preached this before, and a student um, told me they did this. Before they went to the interview, they went to LinkedIn. They found a recent UCSB graduate, connected with them, had coffee. So when they walked into the interview, they were able to say, oh, Chris, I know John. I had coffee with him the other day. And he actually told me this, that, and the other about yeah. your company. Nobody does that. So all of a sudden, you're now right. standing out from the crowd. You're showing initiative. You're showing that you can network. You're showing that you had the initiative to learn about the company before you came in. So try to think of what is one thing I can do when I sit down for an interview that will make me stand out. Because I've interviewed a lot of people, and believe me, it's a blur. You just go, I don't even remember. Who, which, which one was that? And what did they say? Do something positive, not negative, um, to stand out. Don't show up late with a Starbucks in your hand and go, oh, sorry, I had to get coffee. That happened to me once, too. I'm like, well, this is going to be a short interview because i got work to do. Um, we'll take the next question from the audience. Uh, I had a very similar question um, to the previous one. We'll make it different. <laughs> That's it? I just had a similar question. Here, I'll ask a question. You figure yours out, okay? So do you... <laughs> so you, you had all this Wall Street experience. Yeah. We know that... Being a, a mutual fund manager, being a hedge fund manager is different from being an angel fund invest- yeah. investor. Were there were there skills that you brought to that type of investing, or how you know how are those different? Yeah, um, angel investing is a lot different than investing in a public company. Right? And maybe explain because it's so. Not- I mean, a public company, you know, a public company is something you see on the stock exchange. You can you know buy and sell a stock like that in and out. I mean, I can be in and out in a second. Right. Once you make a commitment to an angel investment, there's nobody to sell it to. Right. Right. I mean, this is an illiquid investment, and so you uh, you, you want to make sure that you really. I look for I look for make sure it's a good business. I look for it's a good management, and what I look for in an angel investment is to make sure that there's some oversight. And this is the lesson that I've learned over time. I had lunch with uh, some people beforehand. You need to make sure that there's some oversight, some adult supervision, so that the money that you're putting in isn't just getting spent on, you know, vacations in Hawaii and, and Lamborghinis and a big salary. So what I look for now more than ever is, uh, you know, some adult supervision on the angel investment to make sure that the money goes where it's supposed to do, which is to hire people to mm-hmm. invest in the business, invest in the technology to make it grow. I mean, that's what we're doing here. We're, we're trying to grow these businesses. And so it's a, it is a very, di- it's a very different uh, animal. I mean... And so uh, I, I learned a lot by losing money. And uh, I'm a different angel investor today than I was back then. And I'm a better, uh, you know, and I'm a different. And running a hedge fund is entirely different than running a mutual fund, too. So, uh, you know, you learn. You have, to, you have to learn. You have to adapt. You have to pivot. You learn about that in class. And um, 
Yeah. Yeah. So you're. I mean, I think you're harking back to you're looking for that person that's been there before. Maybe they're not even on the team. Right. That could be an advisor. Yeah. That could be a mentor. Yeah. And you, you, it, you would be amazed at the number of mistakes you won't make if you have someone not necessarily there every day with you, but someone you can bounce ideas off of because they've made all those mistakes before, and they can stop you. You'll still make your share, but you'll make different mistakes. You won't just make the same mistakes that uh, that your board board member or, or advisor or mentor has made in his in the past. Okay. Well, are you ready now? We'll take your question. Uh, so uh, I've had an idea for um, for interviews, and I wanted to know, like, uh, if it would, how you would feel uh, about it as someone who interviews people. Um, when you go in for an interview uh, for a job, these interviewers uh, meet a lot of people, and so I was thinking about. Uh, I've always wanted to put like a picture of myself, like attach it to my resume, so you could put a face uh, to a name. I think it's a great idea. Yeah, my daughter did that also to her resume, and I, I, I thought it was a great idea. I don't know why more people don't do it. It's not hard to do, right? And to just throw, put it up there. Yeah, make sure you're clean-shaven. Okay. Especially if you're a woman, right? Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> So obviously resumes are still important, but LinkedIn, LinkedIn is really where people go now. Yeah, I know. So, LinkedIn is very popular too, by the so way. So you, you, you want to make sure your LinkedIn is dialed in, um, that you show you have some connections. Hopefully you've been able to connect with people like Chris that um, have, have sizable networks and, and reasonable networks. Um, resumes are important, but most people now are just going to go right to your LinkedIn and see. They are. So update it. Yeah. Uh, you know, don't be, you know, constantly update it and... Uh, yeah, keep it current, and I don't do that, so I'm sort of preaching something that I don't do. But I, but I, I'm not looking for a job. So, all right, we'll take another question from the audience. Hi, I feel my question was mostly answered in the beginning of the um, talk, but I suppose I could ask for some more specifics. So, as an economics major, I find it sometimes very difficult to connect very, very abstract concepts that they teach you in class to the to any real-world applications. Could you go into the sort of things in your economics major at UCLA that helps you with achieving an MBA and helping you in business? Okay. So the economics major in the investment business is very helpful, but principally macroeconomics. So you really need to know monetary theory. You should understand Keynesian and Austrian economics. Um, and... Uh, those broad concepts today in today's market are probably more relevant than you know anything I learned certainly on the political science side um, so I understand how some of the microeconomics theories and some of these classes you know some of the decision sciences and the regression models and all that stuff you know can be kind of a pain in the butt but in, in the investment business, the macro, uh, the monetary policy is, is a critical class, and, and some of these macro concepts are, will, will um, when you get out in the world, you get a job and you want to invest, you'll be able to, uh, and you, you should always read the Wall Street Journal, every, even if you're not um, an entrepreneur, if you're not into business, it's a really, really good paper. Um, and it's the largest circulating paper in the country, and, and um, it's, it's very helpful, if uh, particular in the uh, understanding economics. 
Yeah, and I think for folks on the front side of their career, just some of the lexicon that you and I might take for granted, they'll learn that as yeah. well. You start to learn, um, you know, start to learn the language of business. Um, yeah, and I took a lot of economics too in, in, in undergrad, and I found that even though it did maybe not help me directly, like his question was specific, I can't point to a specific thing that it helped me with, but just having that understanding of this is how the economy works, yeah. this is how government um, and the private sector work together, I think that was certainly worthwhile as, a, as an entrepreneur. So do you see a consistent pattern of mistakes that young entrepreneurs make when they're seeking funds from you? So. You know, you've got a group of people, they know you're an angel investor, they're pitching yeah. you. Right. Do you have advice or, or sort of yeah. pitfalls that you see over and over? Yeah, I don't, I, that's hard to say. I think, um, you know, generally, people pitch ideas. And they have a hard time taking those ideas and... Um, generating a model that how they can take these ideas and 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 make make a business out of it and and turn it into a, a real profit and loss right so I think it's uh, and that's why I really like a team you know so it's what I love about the NVC where you have to put a group of people together from different uh, disciplines and I think you know it's it's that you have an entrepreneur who's got this really great idea, but how do you take that idea and then and then turn it into um, a real model? I mean, I, I'm on the uh, well, I was on the um, the panel for the NVC, and um, you know there were six people making presentations, and of the six, you know I'm not sure that I understood. Um, where some of these business models were going. Right. Some I did and some I didn't. So that's the real problem I, I see. And then, and, and if you don't get that, you can't raise money. And you got to raise money. It all comes down to raising money. And that was why you all ultimately, if you want to be in business, have to learn to sell. Because that's, that's part of a, just being a salesman. Right. Yeah, well, one mistake I often see is students, not students, younger people, recent students, waiting to start until they get money. So they'll pitch an idea right. to someone like you, and you're like, well, that's such a good idea, so what have the results been so far? Well, I don't know. I don't have money yet. Wrong answer. You want to come to somebody like Chris and say, hey, look, I know I've started out small. I bootstrapped. I don't have a lot of money, but look at the traction I have already. Right. I'm not just talking about this idea. This isn't just a hope of mine. I've already got people using it or partnering with me or whatever the manifestation is. Right. That's, that, again, will differentiate you from everyone else that just sort of has an idea and wants money. That's a tough sell. You want to show traction, and the only way you show traction is get out there uh, and do it yourself. Um, my question is a little different. Managing hedge, hedge funds is a really time-consuming job, so I'm wondering how you manage to balance your life with work, your work life, and your work outside of your life outside of work. Yep. Right. So managing that work-life balance. Okay. As a hedge fund manager. Your hedge fund manager, you don't have... You're out of balance. You're out of balance. You're out of balance. I mean, I used to play golf as a mutual fund guy. I used to play golf a lot, you know, six months a year in Boston, but I enjoyed it. When I started, when I started my business, for the first six months, I played nine holes. Okay? <laughs> uh, when I ran the hedge fund, I played golf maybe once every six months. It is an, between family yep. and running a business, it is an all, running a business is an all-consuming job. Running a hedge fund, 
on top of which is running a business as well, is an all-consuming job. I wouldn't recommend it out of college. I would say you definitely need a lot of experience to, first of all, understand all the markets. But it's not... Um, it's, it's, it's a difficult, stressful life. Chris, thank you so much. Okay. This is great. All right.